minutes, 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. This little segment is called T.D. Barnes, Area 51, and the Aliens. I was um, busy looking for an interview that um, George Knapp had done with T.D. Barnes on Area 51. T.D. Barnes was um, the head of the Roadrunners, the CIA group that worked on the A-12, the U-2 radar um, from the Russians, worked with the MiGs, uh, has written three books on the CIA program at Area 51. And I was looking for the reference where he had told George Knapp that his impression of what was going on Area 51 now was that uh, there's no supersonic stuff going on, that it's all subsonic, it all got to do with sensors, and he figured it would be drones. And this goes to the whole question of do we have alien technology and are we flying it around? The idea that we're using drones um, seems to fit better because if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, uh, what happened in Afghanistan, I've always had some problems believing that we have real secret UFO technology and yet really not seeing anything on the battlefield except for people lobbing missiles and um, shells at each other, almost like going back to World War II. So I didn't find that interview, but I did uh, see that T.D. Barnes had given a lot of interviews. So I downloaded about 12 interviews and uh, listened to them all and wanted to make some comments on some of the things he said, because he does talk a, a lot about uh, the whole alien at Area 51 story, uh, comments on the Nimitz, and he's a heavyweight. He's a, he's a big name very famous at Area 51, and so I've listed a bunch of things over these 12 interviews, and this doesn't go in any sort of direct order, but um, I wanted to comment on some of the things that he had said, because I have I wrote the book called UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants, and uh, I and my co-author T. Scott Crane were actually working on Area 51 while it was happening. Uh, T. Scott Crane was in contact with George Knapp as in 1989 when this was happening, and I actually had a conversation with um, John Lear the morning after they got caught by the Camo dudes, and I believe I have that on tape, and I have to I have to find it. So here's what I picked up from from the interviews. T. 
T.D. Barnes is a big is a skeptic. He said he's never seen anything, um, and he would deny that he ever saw anything at Area 51 that had to do with extraterrestrials or uh, advanced technology not made in the United States. And he even concluded that he does not believe ETs have been here. And he, in a number of interviews, he referenced uh, the distance to the closest star, Alpha Centauri, uh, how great the distances were, and that he was very skeptical. And he stated that none of the pilots and none of the CIA people he worked with ever talked about UFOs or claimed to have seen it or had any inside knowledge. So looking at that, you'd say, well, maybe the whole story of Bob Lazar and this whole thing was was actually made up. Um, now, he, he makes a number of statements that sort of, sort of show a principle that I've always talked about with scientists. Um, someone may get a degree in chemistry and they will say, I'm a scientist. And I always dispute that saying, you're not a scientist, you're a chemist who uses the scientific method. Because I worked at the University of Manitoba and I ran all the buildings in the science section at one point and then all the chemistry, all the engineering buildings at another point. So I ran the chemistry building, the, the biology building, and I know very well that um, if you're a chemist, you don't really go into the biology building and you don't go into the physics building and you don't go to the mathematics section or the zoology section. Uh, you basically stick to your own little thing. And that um, we, we make the mistake that we ta tag these people as scientists or they tag themselves as scientists, which sort of means that if it's any sort of scientific discipline, uh, they're able to talk about it, and they're not. Um, I remember one of the biggest, most important jobs I had was working at the faculty club bar at the University of Manitoba. And uh, I would talk to, there's three deans that I was, was, was talking about UFOs. One was the dean of plant science, and he used to want to play a skeptic, and he would sit at the bar all night, and uh, we'd chat back and forth, and he would sort of argue. And then at one point, I basically said to him, I said, you know, you're a botanist, you're a, you're a plant, you're the dean of plant science. What the heck do you know about UFOs? And he said, well, not really anything. And he basically admitted. And that's the whole point, because you're, uh, a botanist doesn't mean you can talk about chemistry or, you know, biology or mathematics or physics or anything like that. You have one very specific uh, talent, and it's very compartmentalized, just like the military is, that you have your, not only your um, discipline that you're in, but you did your PhD on a very, very small segment of that um, that that field. And so I'm not going to argue with somebody who's a, uh, a chemist on chemistry, but T.D. Barnes sort of, uh, I guess he takes a lot of questions on UFOs and stuff like that, and he feels that he has to sort of answer it. And uh, when you look at some of the things he said, he basically, in many ways, doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. And that's not to put him down, but it's it's just the, the fact that uh, some of these stuff he says is, is um, uh, not really that accurate. Uh, he he talks about the fact he he of course is is faced with the Bob Lazar question, and um, he stated that there was not that many people around at the time, and he stated that um, uh, Bob Lazar uh, the guards none of the guards identified the fact that um, they knew Bob Lazar or he'd been on the base, and I've pointed this out many times right from 1989 when we first wrote about this uh, in in the book that Bob Lazar was only on the base five or six times. 
So he was not there full time. He was not there every day. And uh, I went to look up how many people were at Area 51. I'd heard 5,000 people or whatever. And T.D. Barnes does admit that there are more people there now. Uh, but the, the question would be, what the heck would a guard know about who's coming on the base? I mean, they're to, you know, the guy's not going to say, you know, I'm, I'm working on this top secret project and tell the guard um, because everybody stays in their lane and they, they, they're not allowed to talk to people even in other projects. So the guard would not know anything about, you know, whether the guy's there to fix the toilet or whether he's to work there on flying saucers. And again, Bob Lazar was only there uh, a couple of times. So the fact that the guards didn't really recognize him uh, doesn't really mean anything. He did point out that he said that there is an S-4, uh, but he maintained that at S-4, uh, that's where the Russian radars were, were were kept. And he said that Papoose Lake, where Bob Lazar claimed uh, the S-4 site with the flying saucers, that there was nothing there. And uh, perhaps he's been there, so um, I can't dispute that. But uh, the idea that people didn't recognize Bob Lazar when he'd only been there five or six times would, would make total sense. At one point, he said he convinced George Knapp, this was kind of shocked me, he convinced George Knapp that this is not the, the, the place where they would hide a UFO project. I mean, they seem to be hiding every other uh, project, but um, this idea that, um, that that this would be something that no, nobody would be interested in looking and you can see that when uh, Bob Lazar went uh, public in in May of 1989 that there was hundreds of people descending upon the, the base up in the mountains uh, there's a reporter there Billy Goodman who was renting buses so Friday Saturday night these buses would go up into the hills people had cameras and they were actually photographing everything that was happening at the base and uh, that forced the government to actually grab a bunch of land and move people from 11 miles back to 25 miles away so they couldn't look down on the base. Um, and he, he was asked, you know, how, how did people come up with these, these stories? And he makes a story that is, makes some sense that uh, the CIA ran the operation from the 50s till 1989 when the Air Force took, took possession of the... the um, the, the projects that were going on there. And then he stated that that's when stuff started to, to leak out. Um, the, the idea that there was not that many people, um, we got to remember that the Lazar story did not break till 1989. So there was a lot more people in 1989. And um, this idea that um, they, they wouldn't have moved it there. I just rely on George Knapp's witnesses. And one of the witnesses he had was a woman who's a steno who was taking notes uh, for when the material was being moved. I, I was, I'm assuming from Ray Patterson Air Force Base to Area 51. And that was the woman who um, was one of six witnesses that uh, backed off camera after they had talked to George and then they were going on camera and they were threatened. And her threat was, uh, we know you have a daughter in Los Angeles and you go to visit her all the time. We hate to have something happen in the desert. So uh, the Lazar thing happened much later, and it was not back in the 1950s and 60s when um, there was not that many people. There was more people there in, in 1989. Um, and I would state, he said, that people would see things there, and they would misidentify them as UFOs. Now, uh, what he was talking about most of the time was the A-12 and the U-2 and stuff like that. 
And I can guarantee you that what um, John Lear and Lazar and uh, Gene Huff saw when they filmed it on, on this Wednesday night in 1989 uh, definitely wasn't a U-2 landing. And uh, I saw an object in 1975 that was a couple hundred feet off the ground moving at 30 miles an hour, flew right in front of the car, and I can guarantee that wasn't an A-12 either. So uh, people do see a lot of stuff. And uh, one of the other things that he mentioned, which was uh, almost goes back because he worked at CIA, he was a contractor for the CIA. He, he brings out, he says he talked to the uh, historian for the CIA, and he actually pulls something right out of the uh, 1997 study that was done by the, the CIA. My question is, why did the uh, CIA do a study in 1997 on UFOs? And that was because uh, Clinton's first CIA director, James Woesley, I was trying to get to the bottom. He and his wife had had a sighting in New Hampshire years before, and he was under pressure from um, John Peterson at the Arlington Institute and from Stanton Friedman and people, and he requested a review being done on UFOs, and they came up with this study. And it was in that study where they made this claim that a lot of UFOs were people seeing the U-2 and the, um, uh, the A-12. Uh, up 13 miles and and I would say quite categorically that if you've ever seen a plane fly over at high altitude um, it's only at um, say 30,000 or 35,000 feet uh, these were flying up at 80 90,000 feet and I kind of doubt that anybody can see an object that high up into in the atmosphere and identify, identify it as a UFO especially the one I saw which was definitely not more than a couple hundred feet off the ground and was red and plasma and pulsing and uh, he was asked at one point about the need to know which is um, it basically comes down to the same sort of thing that we know about in UFOs and he basically sort of indicated that he sort of knew what was going on what projects were going on but that would be contrary to the idea of the need to know that he's in his little box you do your radar thing with the MiGs and and uh, you really don't know what's going on in other people's uh, uh, little area of, 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 of study. Uh, and if he did claim that he knew, well, then there's a violation of need to know because people are, are telling him stuff that they shouldn't be telling him. Um, now, he, he, he doesn't um, really deal with the, the idea that the uh, government had admitted that they had investigated UFOs, which is one of the questions in all the interviews. I didn't get anybody to, no, nobody asked him that question, which is a question that I'd ask him is, well, the government denied for, you know, 75 years that they weren't involved. And then suddenly 2017, they admit, yes, we did have an investigation. And uh, then indications that there was other investigations, but they actually admitted there was an investigation, which would indicate that, yeah, they could have a project going at Area 51, and he would just not have a need to know. This goes to a story that um, is told about Kit Green. Kit Green was uh, the CIA uh, guy who ran the, the remote viewing. He was the control officer for the remote viewing program, has had a top-secret SCI clearance probably since 1969, and uh, was very much into uh, UFOs and paranormal phenomena and remote viewing and all this kind of stuff. And um, I just uh, recovered some material as I go through. I'm scanning my uh, UFO documents. I'm putting them all up on the internet, and then I'm going to destroy my files. And um, 
in in that kid green had um i got a confirmation from material i got in 2002 the same story that's now floating around i think kid green has sort of admitted this was that he was trying to get read into the uh, not the ufo program but into the um, alien autopsy program he had some he had been offered uh, by a high level guy who had done uh, some of the autopsy stuff that he would try to get him in the program and he never did get in the program and this would be the the deal that if he's got this top secret SCI clearance since 1969 if he doesn't get read in well then it's pretty compartmentalized which is exactly what the Canadians said in a top secret document in 1950 that they've been told by the Americans flying saucers exist uh, it, uh, it's the most highly classified subject in the United States so if it's the most highly classified subject in the United States a need to know would would indicate that just because uh, T.D. Barnes worked at uh, Area 51 for 10 years and is the head of the Roadrunners doesn't mean that he's read in on uh, a possible program that is the most highly classified subject in the United States. Um, and another thing that um, sort of goes contrary to this whole idea of him saying there's nothing to this, uh, is, is, is garbage, there's no recovered technology, and he even refers to... Um, the $22 million that was uh, given to um, Bob Bigelow, the contract, and he said uh, they, would, they, gave, they gave him uh, the, the, the money to hide material in, in, in hangars or UFO crash saucers. And, of course, that indicates that he has no idea what he's talking about because that's not what they were doing. Um, nobody's admitted that a lot of it was Skinwalker Ranch and it was these programs on advanced uh, propulsion for uh, 2050 and uh, the, the only thing was came out of the New York Times was this rumored thing that uh, Bob Bigelow was building a facility and now all the rumors started about uh, he's gonna move uh, flying saucers and of course um, T.D. Barnes repeats this rumor and claims that it was a big scam and that they wasted the $22 million to hide these, these flying saucers. And that's not what the program is about at all. Uh, and, and yet you have material that's, I think, is as credible as, as him. He hasn't had a security clearance as long as Kit Green. And I always re reference the fact that um, in the 1980s, and this story was confirmed to me, was that there was the famous meeting at the Denny's restaurant where Jacques Vallée, Kit Green, and Hal Putoff met to discuss what do we know about UFOs for real. Uh, a lot of garbage floating around, and they came up with what was called the core story. And the core story was simple. Uh, we're being visited by something. We have uh, crash material, and we're not doing very well at back-engineering it. The other person that uh, referenced this and actually uh, testified in front of Congress in a classified hearing was Dr. Eric Davis, and he said the same thing, that we have crash material and uh, end of story. So um, I, I think that sort of uh, backs up the fact that uh, the government is very interested. They have investigated. They've, they're uh, agreed they've, in, they've investigated UFOs, and they'd be crazy not to work on it. And uh, the, 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 there's high-level people like Kit Green and Hal Putoff and Jacques Vallée and Eric Davis who are all saying, yes, we actually have this material, and I think I would uh, believe them. One of the interesting things that I noticed, um, that he's very upset with Andy Jacobson. And this is kind of an interesting story. I can sort of add to this. Um, he, he said, we don't exchange uh, 
Christmas cards. And Annie Jacobson wrote the famous book, Area 51. And he talked about the fact that he had taken her for a tour of all the uh, intelligence facilities, CIA, and he introduced her to the commanders. And then she stabbed him in the back by putting out um, this book. And he said it was all good until the last chapter. And then um, he, he tells what he claims she said. And I basically think that uh, T.D. Barnes needs to apologize to Annie Jacobson because he absolutely destroys the story. He claims that Annie Jacobson in the last chapter uh, claimed that they, the guys at Area 51 uh, would take handicapped children and uh, they would um, change their eyes, they would they'd enlarge the eyes, uh, change the shape of the head, and then put them in crafts and crash them. And that's not even close to what Annie Jacobson said. She never accused the Area 51 guys of this. She stated quite clearly that this was a story that was told to her by, um, and I'll talk, get to that in a minute, but a story that um, she used from from an engineer and that it was the Russians and the the um, the, the Germans after World War II had mo- genetically modified uh, young kids to uh, put them on a thing and crash it in the United States. So she, at no time did she say it was Area 51 people. She said it was the, the, the Russians and the Germans. And the other thing that he uh, attacked her for was the fact that uh, she used this, this guy and the interviewer that was interviewing sort of agreed and said, well, she should have two sources. Well, the part of the story that people really don't know, I don't think, is who the guy was. And um, he was the third, the third highest level guy at e, EG&G, which is, uh, used to run Area 51 uh, as a top contractor there for all the top secret programs. And um, the, the story is told by uh, George Knapp that during this event, he actually spent six months with this guy. His first name was Alfred. And, and, and George Knapp has told the story now, I think, publicly. And um, what happened was that uh, George was meeting with him every week and he, was ta- he wasn't allowed to take notes or tape and he would leave the restaurant and he would quickly write down what this guy had said. And um, he said there was, there was no uh, German, uh, uh, Russian uh, stuff. This was all E.T. And this is the guy that claimed that they, he, he told George they have, we, have a, we had a live alien at Area 51. And that's when George said, you had a, an alien and you kept it captive. And this uh, Alfred guy said, well, we really don't, we didn't know what to do with it. We couldn't communicate with it. And um, so George uh, had these meetings. And then uh, according to George, uh, the guy claimed that someone had seen the meeting and that he was not, he was not, was not allowed to talk to um, George Knapp anymore. Now you take a look at that. So that's in, in the early 1990s, I would assume. And uh, so when Annie Jacobson comes along, this guy probably got into trouble for telling George Knapp all this inside stuff about UFOs and what was going on at Area 51. And um, he, it was time, it was payback time. So they got him to approach Annie Jacobson and uh, tell her this story, this bizarre story that makes no sense whatsoever about uh, genetically modifying kids, which would take like 15 years or whatever. And that almost like in three weeks, they genetically modified this kid and, and put him on a thing and crashed him at Roswell, New Mexico, which is a total nonsense story. But he had to, uh, it was payback time, so he told the story to Andy Jacobson. 
And the dispute was that um, they didn't have two sources. Well, it's like if you get it from the, and Annie Jacobson said, this guy said it, so I'm putting it in the book. Now, the key was who this guy was. He was the third top guy at EG&G. He had helped wire the, the atomic bombs in the 1940s when they were doing the, the, the tests, uh, atomic bomb tests at the, at the site. And um, so you have that kind of source. It's like saying, uh, I got this from the president and um, I'm putting it in the book. And you say, well, no, you need a second source. You can't just use the, the word of the president. This is a very high-level guy. And that's why Andy Jacobson used this guy. It's the same guy that was talking to George Knapp back in the 1990s. And the story was completely different. I think George sort of refers to it. It was all ET. There was there was nothing else. He was, he was uh, very clear about the fact that this, it was the real deal. Um, now he talked about the Nimitz, which was, um, again, he, um, sort of misses, um, doesn't seem to know the story very well. He, he, he talked about it. He believes, um, that it was, he, he denies it's ET. He denies that it's a uh, secret, uh, Russian, uh, American, uh, technology. And cause he's a radar guy. He talked, he would tell us the stories about how they were able to, uh, make stuff appear on, on Russian radars. They could, you know, make it look like there was a whole fleet of of uh, planes coming and stuff like that. So he was he was saying that it, they were spoofing the radar, that it was a, a new radar system that they had uh, in the Nimitz carrier group, and that um, this was uh, something appearing. Now he doesn't really deal with the fact that uh, there was eyewitnesses and and the uh, the film. He does mention the fact the film was leaked and seemed upset about that. That, uh, but you have not only uh, the radar, you have the eyewitnesses, and you also have the, the whole idea of the thing going from 80,000 feet down to surface. Now, he can say that that was picked up on radar and that um, they were spoofing the radar, uh, but um, we actually have the film from 1975, the Charlie Red Star film, uh, where the camera guy catches it going from the ground up to 3,000 feet in the air in one-eighth of a second. So this kind of stuff uh, is caught on film. Uh, there's no radar spoofing. Uh, we'd always said in 1975-1976-that-if-this-was-American-technology-they-should-have-done-a-bit-better-in-the-Vietnam-War-because-we-had-it-there-and-it-was-showed-this-very-high-end-ability-to-move-around-at-high-speed-and-go-at-very-low-spe
you you get a letter from the president and you bring it to me and then I'm going to check to make sure it's a letter from the president, but I don't have to tell you nothing and get out of my office. So Kid Green was extremely interested and even the uh, when I released the alien autopsy document, uh, Kid Green did not, he said the document was a real document, uh, but that he'd been, he'd been uh, deceived by uh, high-level people that he was trying to get these briefings on the alien autopsy and stuff like that but that they were they would always pull it back at the last minute. So Kit Green is a CIA guy, big time, long time CIA guy, and he was extremely interested. Jim Semivan is a high level CIA guy, equivalent to a two star general. Uh, and Jim Semivan had the beings in his room. Uh, Jim Semivan was the guy who set up the whole New York Times thing. This whole disclosure thing that's going on right now was all, all Jim Semivan. He went to the top uh, three letter agencies and he told these guys, this UFO thing, you guys can't get it out. We're going to get it out. And that's exactly what they did. They, they uh, leaked this film. Uh, they um, put, put the story into the New York Times. And all the disclosures seen now all came from Jim Semivan. Jim Semivan was CIA. So CIA is interested. Ron Pendolfi, who I've uh, followed for years, has been talking UFOs endlessly since at least 1991 when he started to give stories to his friend Dan Smith. Uh, John Ramirez is an experiencer. Again, he was an ex- not he was a GS-15 or whatever it was a very high-level CIA guy, very much interested in in UFOs and talked UFOs all the time. And then the last one I mentioned is Chase Brandon. Chase Brandon was the CIA um, guy, the Hollywood guy. That when Hollywood wanted to do a movie on CIA, he would go in and he would try to direct them to uh, present the CIA in a good light. He wrote a book called The Christos Conundrum. And um, that book, he said, if you want a good read, and this is supposedly a a book about uh, how the CIA had handled the Roswell crash. He said, if you want a good read, it's a fictional book. If you want a good read, read the book. If you want to learn something, read between the lines. He was actually going to do another UFO book later on, and that book never appeared. But Chase Brandon was pretty open there for for quite a while, doing a lot of interviews and talking uh, as an ex-CIA guy. But CIA is extremely interested in this thing, uh, no matter what uh, T.D. Barnes may think. He did mention an interesting thing, which always comes up in the UFO community, is the Aurora. Uh, His explanation of the Aurora was that it was the B-2 bomber and that the B-2 bomber, they needed extra funding and they could, didn't have enough money. So what they did is it created another line project, another line item in the budget uh, for an Aurora project, but it was actually extra money that was needed to finish off the B-2. And that's where the Aurora idea came from. And there he may know because he, he was there and, uh, and had some involvement with, with uh, testing all these, the B2 and all these different programs. So he would have had a need to know on that kind of stuff. Um, one of the things he says, he, he contradicts this kind of strange, where he said, uh, the Washington can't keep secrets. And uh, it's this whole idea that, you know, if, if we had crash flying saucers, it'd be all over the place. It'd be millions of people would know about it and stuff like this. And then on another, in, in a number of interviews, he, he's asked, can you, can, can, 
can stuff be kept secret? The stuff you were doing there. And he said, oh, yeah, sure. He And he references the A-12, which was taken out of commission in 1968. They put them in hangars in 1968, and they didn't announce the program until 1991. And he said nobody knew anything until 1991. So they had they ran the whole program. Then they kept these things in, in hangars for two and a half decades and kept it totally secret. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say we can't keep secrets. And, yeah, we had this thing totally secret. Nobody knew what we were had any clue what we were doing. Uh, one of the things he mentioned, which is kind of interesting, and this shows you this word game that goes on. He mentioned Project Rainbow. He's big into stealth. He worked on this on the uh, stealth, and that's where he says it's going. We're going into systems of stealth rather than speed. So it's to keep yourself hidden, uh, to jam the other radar, to make things appear, make it look like uh, you're in different places, and that there's five of you and stuff like that. And so he, he mentions Project Rainbow. Now, as soon as he said that, I I knew it was a stealth on the U-2 because I had looked it up. And the, the key to that is this comes down to the whole Benowitz affair. And um, uh, there's uh, books written about it and a lot of people have written about it. And it was basically the, the, the cover story that they threw out and everybody wrote about it. Everybody just sort of gobbled it up and wrote about it was that the, the, the Americans were afraid of the... Um, the um, Russian uh, spies and stuff like that. So they, they wanted to throw them off. And so what they would do is they would redirect their satellites, which is total nonsense because uh, Russian satellites were just like garbage cans flying through the sky. They didn't have any control type mechanisms and um, that they would redirect the satellites. And this was Project Rainbow. So this is what they were actually doing. They weren't, they weren't doing UFOs, even though it was the Manzano Weapons Storage Area, which is the biggest repository for nuclear weapons in the world. And that's what Benoit said. There's UFOs over the nuclear weapons storage area. And of course, they had to uh, direct him away. But the, when they talked to the researchers years later, they said, oh, no, no, it wasn't. We weren't doing that. We were, we were throwing off the Russians and we we're using this Project Rainbow. But Project Rainbow was a stealth on the U-2, and that's what uh, um, T.D. Barnes talks about quite a bit, is that they tried to make the stealth, uh, uh, the U-2 stealthy, and they, they added uh, paint because uh, they, they didn't want it seen, so they would, they would change the paint, but they couldn't go as high with the paint. Even the paint would uh, take thousands of feet off the altitude uh, for that, and he said they strung piano wire and had all sorts of ideas about how to create stealth on the U-2. That was Project Rainbow. So it had nothing to do with uh, the stuff that was going on with Benowitz. Benowitz probably was reporting exactly uh, what he um, um, was, was reporting, and, and they had to throw him off because they didn't want everybody to know that there was nuclear weapons um, over the Manzano, Manzano weapons storage area. Now, the last item I'd like to um, mention about what he had said, and, and T.D. Barnes is a very interesting guy. I mean, he's, he's a good storyteller, and uh, I'd say 95% of what he says is um, very interesting and uh, very, very um, accurate, believable. He's sort of like writing the, the um, history of the, the um, uh, A-12 because he claimed that the CIA lost all they, they lost all the papers they'd been moved to Norton Air Force Base and they didn't have anything at all no records of the A12 and so he was brought in to uh, do the history of the of the A12 so that kind of stuff when you hear him he's, he's worth listening to if you get a chance to listen to TD Barnes doing interviews but the last thing he mentioned was was um, that NASA um, has no security clearances and so 
I thought, wow, I never heard that before. So, of course, I went to my friend uh, Google and I said, hey, Google, does uh, um, Na NASA have security clearances? And here's what it writes, simple Google search. Uh, when a position becomes available at NASA, um, a supervisor assigns a security clearance level to the job and a human resource officer confirms it. Level four positions are special sensitive jobs involving top secret information. Level three positions are critical sensitive jobs involving secret information. Level two positions are non-critical sensitive positions. Access to the most sensitive information is only granted on a need to know basis to individuals considered mission critical for a particular task. Each level of clearance requires a separate set of background checks. So yes, they do have security clearances. He said it may have changed, but uh, at first he stated that um, there, there was none. So uh, interesting guy, but um, just wanted to point out some of these things because they highlight other stories that, that have happened. And um, I still contend that when it comes to Bob Lazar, it's, it, Bob Lazar is the uh, ultimate witness they wanted. Uh, he's like a toxic blow up the story, uh, but you got to remember that uh, George Knapp had over two dozen other witnesses, and he told me about some of them, and he's talked about them publicly. Uh, when George Knapp's got two dozen other witnesses, and when he goes to a congressman or a senator, I can't remember who it was, uh, and couldn't get Bob Lazar's records through a congressman, uh, you know something's up, and uh, George Knapp isn't stupid, and uh, he can't have 25 people all lying. So I would uh, say that that Bob Lazar was there, uh, even if it was a setup. They brought him in because they wanted him to put out this story, and um, they um, only allowed him on a couple times, and that's why he started to talk. That's why he took uh, Lear and uh, Huff and uh, people out to the desert to to watch the tests, and um, so that's about it. Um, thanks for listening and. We'll talk to you soon. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.